Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. On October 8th, Brownstein's healthcare industry group hosted a panel discussion with industry experts about what the election, the Affordable Care Act challenge before the Supreme Court, and policy trends mean for the future of healthcare and industry transactions. The discussion includes a pre-election assessment on further COVID aid legislation, the likely result of the ACA challenge, potential Trump and Biden presidential priorities on healthcare policies and responses to ACA Supreme Court scenarios, and the environment for healthcare businesses and dealmaking. Brownstein has been sponsoring these healthcare roundtables in various forms for over a decade now. And it's one of my great pleasures to bring together uh, really big thinkers in the space and talk a little bit about uh, how the macro of policy out of DC impacts business and then how uh, the business impacts the real world of healthcare. Uh, all the way you know, down to the, the patient uh, who needs care. So our panel is going to be moderated by myself. I founded the healthcare group at Brownstein uh, just about 10 years ago. And our first two speakers to kick things off will be Nadim Elshami, who's policy director at our DC office, uh, formidable voice in the most important policy debates of the last decade, Nadim leverages his insights on policy and politics in crafting legislative solutions for his clients. Former chief of staff for then House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, uh, he'll bring his expertise from 25 years on the Hill. Also from the Brownstein DC office, Brian McGuire, policy director, longtime advisor on public policy and political strategy. Brian most recently served as the Department of Treasury's Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs. Prior to that role, served as longtime aide to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So without further ado, let's get right into it. And we have some other distinguished guests that we'll introduce after this first um, go-round uh, between Nadim and Brian, who obviously each represent uh, different sides of the aisle. And I'll throw it out there. Um, do we have any hope for another COVID relief bill or, or even a skinny bill, uh, the tweets are even flowing out here first thing this morning. Uh, anything getting done before election day, or is that relegated to the lame duck and what might it look like there? I'll uh, go with uh, Nadim first on this one and, and we'll take turns going forward, Nadim. Great, thank you so much, uh, Mike, and um, hello everyone. And um, I think, um, uh, the discussions you're gonna to witness today is probably what the, the speaker and, and, and Leader McConnell uh, have had in the past. So, and I really enjoy always being um, on with, uh, with my colleague, uh, Brian McGuire. I, I don't anticipate any opportunities for a COVID related package this uh, before the election. I think um, uh, Secretary Mnuchin and the speaker, while they were apart, I think uh, they could have made some more progress, but unfortunately, uh, things came to a halt when the president made a decision uh, to, uh, to stop the negotiations. Uh, now the question is, will they be able to pass anything in terms of, uh, for example, airline uh, worker uh, assistance in the next uh, uh, three, to, uh, three weeks before the election? That remains unclear, which takes me to the lame duck. Um, you know, the, the outcome of the election is certainly going to determine what could get done in the lame duck. But I could speak that uh, on behalf of, of Democrats in the House and, and chairman and even the speaker who I've talked to, 
about this, and, and the view is if there's an omnibus appropriations uh, bill going forward, uh, they feel that there's an opportunity to include uh, some targeted um, um, healthcare provisions related to coronavirus, whether that is uh, more assistance to hospitals and providers, uh, whether it's additional money for testing and tracing. Uh, but again, that remains to be seen and depends on what the outcome of the election is. But that is something that they're going to be pushing for uh, going forward. Brian, how about you? What's your perspective? Well, my perspective, surprisingly enough, is uh, very similar to Nadeem's. Um, I, I, I share his pessimism about a, a big bill coming together. I think Senate Republicans would be perfectly willing to pass individual bills that aided uh, industries like the airline industry, which appears to be on the verge of some very um, steep job losses in the absence of such a bill. Um, I think expanding the Paycheck Protection Program um, would be also very popular. Republicans are open to passing bills that have bipartisan support and that could pass on their own. I think the likelihood of something like that coming over from the House is low, as the speaker indicated uh, just this afternoon. I agree that um, the larger talks that have been going on between Secretary Mnuchin, my old boss, and the speaker appear um, not to be heading anywhere fruitful between now and the election. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's probably, um, you know, a, a fairly good bet right now. The, the, the White House, the president is quite unpredictable, as you all know, and um, it has a unique negotiating style. Uh, I, I don't doubt that we'll see many kind of fits and starts between now and the election about whether a bill is going to come together or not going to come together, but I do think that the dyna dynamics at the moment argue uh, against it. In terms of a lame duck um, end of year opportunity, um, I think, yeah, depending on the outcome of the election, there, there are a lot of different combinations here, but I think that there is bipartisan interest in getting some things done. There's been a fair amount of talk on surprise medical billing, for instance. Um, that's something that I would, I would think might be achievable in a lame duck, depending on the outcome of the election. And then Republicans put a marker as to what they would support in the healthcare space in the bill that they passed last month. Um, they definitely support additional funds for vaccine, therapeutics, uh, testing, tracing, and um, things in that area. So uh, there could be um, areas of convergence here, but in terms of a big bill being the vehicle for those areas of convergence, it seems very unlikely at the moment to me. So the good thing about this format with our Brownstein panel is that uh, unlike the presidential and vice presidential debates, uh, we get to go deep on a particular subject matter that's near and dear to our hearts. So you know, of, of the near 100 RSVPs, uh, we've got a great cross-section of folks in our audience today, uh, a number of providers, a number of hospitals in the provider category. We have uh, dentistry represented, infusion, nephrology, uh, fertility, a great many more. And then a number of deal professionals in and around the healthcare space, as well as think tanks. So I know that these folks are excited for us to go a layer deeper on this. And you know, before we move on to the Affordable Care Act challenge before the Supreme Court, and then scenarios post-election, which we're all excited to dive in on, um, on this potential legislation in the lame duck, 
what are the likely fault lines and uh, are the, the parties willing to let go of those fault lines? So potentially it's limited liability on the GOP side uh, and on the Democratic side, they'd like to have more funds going to state and local governments that you know, the GOP takes umbrage to. So uh, this time I'll come to you first, Brian. Brian? Well, Leader McConnell has been very clear that he does not um, intend to put a bill on the floor that does not have liability shields uh, for, um, you know, the entire uh, private sector of the economy and, and, and large parts of the public. So I don't, I don't see Republicans giving on um, liability protections. I think they think, you know, they're, they're, there's a there are a couple of of larger philosophical fault lines even before you get to the policy and and one of those i think is for republicans they want to facilitate an economic recovery and um, they don't think that you can facilitate an economic recovery unless employers are protected from mass lawsuits um uh, on, on against them and so that that's that's why Republicans have been very insistent on that, and I don't see them changing their their stripes or or uh, modifying that in any way. So, you know, if it is an interesting question, if you had a an individual bill come over, would would there be the same insistence on liability protections? I think a that's not likely because Democrats have made it clear they don't want to pass individual bills. But just to play the hypothetical out, um, I think, sure, if, if a bill were to come over that's very narrow, then I, I don't think that the same red line has been laid down in terms of liability shields for a narrow bill as has been for a big bill. But generally speaking, philosophically, Republicans have been very firm on this. And I think for good reason, they want to ensure that, um, you know, that there isn't a strong disincentive for the uh, employers to reopen or restart out of fear of, of lawsuits. I think that's all kinds of implications for folks in our audience today. Uh, Nadine, over to you. Yeah, um, well, you know, we, we do, for example, represent uh, um, healthcare product manufacturer and uh, this manufacturer has a, a few plants across the country and he, uh, the owner has taken great care in ensuring that his workers are tested. That uh, his, uh, you know, actions are uh, are are beyond go beyond uh, any recommendations, whether in the state or the federal government. Uh, yet he he faces some uh, some legal uh, repercussions. Uh, that said, uh, I did have a, a discussion with uh, with a member who is what I would call a progressive pragmatist. Uh, in the in the caucus, um, and um, he understands that in order to get something done, that the end a large bill to get done, excuse me, um, you have to have some type of liability protection or liability shield in the legislation. Uh, the speaker did uh, talk with uh, with a group of of members about that, and it's uh, really uh, limited liability in exchange for some type of OSHA. Um, uh, rules that could be uh, released uh, rapidly by the Department of Labor. Um, and, and I do see that the, the, the possibilities here of, of getting that done. And uh, I am not really certain if that discussion went that deep with, with Secretary Mnuchin or not. 
but a, a liability protection that you know Democrats knew from the beginning that that is a, a demand for Leader McConnell that he had put the red line on that and um, and it, it wasn't going to really get addressed until the end. Usually the tough issues, as we all know, don't get negotiated until the end. But but uh, there has been some thinking about how Democrats could approach this issue uh, while at the same time ensuring that uh, they remain um, uh, guaranteeing that uh, employees are going to be uh, also getting the protection. It's not just going to be simply a, a blanket um, a liability protection for employers. So I want to pull in a couple of folks and broaden the dialogue a little bit uh, and get a view from the trenches, uh, both from a healthcare perspective and a business and deal-making perspective. Uh, so I'm going to ask Elizabeth Hawk to speak up. She is dual-boarded. Uh, neuroradiologist and nuclear medicine physician, all that fancy paper on the wall behind her, uh, so I won't list it all off, but um, some of the most interesting work that she does uh, serving on the executive leadership team for the American College of Radiology, Board of Directors for the American Board of Nuclear Medicine. She's internationally recognized as a speaker on artificial intelligence applications in medicine and the president of Ampersand Intelligence Consulting Company, uh, focus on the COVID-19 pandemic response. And so, you know, Elizabeth, uh, let's first go to you in terms of what does this mean if a, a bill doesn't get done, even in the lame duck? Um, what kinds of things do healthcare providers uh, need support for that are extras that are over and above what are in their budgets in these days? You know, hospitals being an obvious example. Thanks so much, Mike. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Um, I think it's important to sort of take this back down to the more granular level and think about the basic patient-physician relationship and what we're dealing with here. Um, part of my clinical work is actually to read ER studies all across uh, rural and community ERs across the US uh, with telemedicine. Um, and not only is my work list flooded with COVID cases, chest CTs and x-rays, but we really see the full spectrum of how this is starting to impact the human experience and human health across the US. Um, we know this disease affects multiple other organ systems and certainly I see strokes and DVTs and um, cardiac complications. Um, but there's also sort of an interesting um, complex phenomena emerging where we're seeing increased uh, cases of suicide, of drug overdose, of domestic violence. The whole psychosocial swella of the pandemic has really started to show itself throughout our healthcare system. And then on top of that, you've got patients that have been um, stopping their primary care, delaying screening examinations, uh, now presenting with more advanced stages of disease like cancer that are unrelated to the pandemic. Um, overall, this has really put tremendous strain on our healthcare system and certainly on our patients and their ability to be uh, productive, innovative, inspired members of our society. Um, but it's also led to tremendous physician burnout and provider burnout across the US. And so we're really entering into this um, tenuous um, time in our country with a very strained system, uh, both on the patient and the provider side. And that's uh, even more daunting given the impending uh, demographics around physicians and impending physician retirements. Uh, so some incredibly challenging times ahead. Uh, I'll next pull in a, a perspective here from Alex Geyer, 
Uh, Alex is Senior Healthcare Investment Banker with GLC Advisors, more than 25 years of experience across services, medical devices, pharma, um, with deep expertise in public and private credit markets, and uh, has done you know, literally uh, over 200 healthcare transactions. So Alex, uh, I know I've got my own opinions on the subject, but what does the current environment mean for healthcare businesses and healthcare deal-making? Thanks, Mike, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to uh, participate in the panel today. Um, from a business impact standpoint, let me start just by mentioning the extension of the repayment timeline for the Medicare Advance Program. What's the source of $100 billion uh, of additional funding for hospitals and, and, and other providers back in March and April? This extension was originally kind of part of the negotiations around the CARES Act 2.0. Uh, but instead wound up being included in the latest continuing resolution for government funding and was a, a pretty big win, frankly, for the provider community. The so resolution pushed out both, you know, kind of the initial repayment date by a year and also the timeline for ultimate repayment from 12 to 29 months from the date of initial repayment. So a big, big impact in terms of, you know, kind of eliminating or at least reducing potential stress on liquidity. Uh, in the current environment. Um, it's not the ultimate solution, you know, I think that providers are hoping for in the way of funding. And I think, still think they're gonna, gonna lobby pretty hard to get some forgiveness um, out of the Medicare Advance uh, program, but still a, a pretty pretty significant positive in terms of the, the current operating environment right now. Um, in terms of a COVID aid bill, you know, if another one were to come, um, there's a few things I would highlight first, any additional, provide, uh, any additional funding for providers, as, you know, as well as remaining funding out of the provider relief fund from CARES 1.0, likely to have uh, a different allocation methodology and, and more precisely target the businesses that need it most, such as community critical access and safety net hospitals, uh, as well as nursing homes. I think as most on this uh, webinar are aware, there's been a lot of scrutiny and controversy around how much of the initial uh, disbursements went to PE-owned and other for-profit companies, and whether those funds were properly directed. And so I think it's safe to assume that you know, kind of those entities will probably not be seeing as much benefit uh, from a CARES 2.0. Um, second area I would note is Medicaid funding, you know, sort of both directly being the matching increases and indirectly through, you know, kind of as was noted, a point of Intention around any additional state and local government support that may be part of an ultimate bill. A lot of states are, are, are confronting the double whammy of declining revenue and expanding Medicaid enrollment, which in turn creates pressure for, for cuts in rates and optional benefits. So strengthening Medicaid folk, uh, funding would be beneficial for a number of sub subsectors, but particularly in, kind of in, in our view, home care, certain dental practice platforms and addiction treatment and other behavioral businesses that have uh, a pretty heavy Medicare fo Medicaid focus rather. And then lastly, from a you know, kind of COVID aid bill standpoint, would, uh, would expect any ultimate bill to uh, include significant additional funding for therapeutics and vaccines and, and testing and tracing, uh, as has been noted already. Um, I frankly see less of an immediate impact uh, from another COVID aid bill on M&A. A deal activities already begun to rebound, especially in subsectors um, with favorable long-term growth outlooks that, if anything, have been uh, accelerated by COVID. Um, chief among these would be 
telehealth and other digital technologies that allow for virtualization of care as this looks like a, a permanent shift in the delivery of at least primary chronic and uh, behavioral care at a minimum. Ambulatory surgery centers whose safety and convenience advantages uh, have only been magnified uh, by COVID. Um, sort of the home care, home health, hospice care continuum, which continues to benefit at the expense of uh, nursing homes and other senior care facilities. Um, and as Elizabeth touched on, you know, kind of multiple pockets within behavioral care, like substance abuse, um, depression, anxiety, various other forms of trauma and abuse that have all spiked as the pandemic continues to disrupt so many lives. Um, those, are, those are my main thoughts. Uh, so happy to turn things back over to you. Well, I think uh, as we transition to this next segment on what comes next for the Affordable Care Act with the challenge before the Supreme Court looming November the 10th, and then the election and the election results and what will that mean for healthcare on a macro basis or a micro basis? What's likely to come out of Washington, D.C.? Uh, big sweeping policy changes, uh, big healthcare reform or incremental uh, tweaks. And I think that probably will be guided by uh, this matrix that we have of Affordable Care Act uh, in or out. And then the election result, uh, is it a President Biden or is it a President Trump? And so we'll uh, pivot toward that road and Alex will come back to you uh, once we've set that table for you know, post-election scenarios. Okay, you know, does that color our thinking? Um, all those hot sectors that you noted for uh, healthcare sub-industries, you know, I would basically concur with. I think the question is how to pay for it. And that's our Affordable Care Act discussion today. So as a lot of people know, and this is a very savvy healthcare audience, uh, the Affordable Care Act has been probably the most challenged piece of legislation in American history. I'd, I'd be curious to know if there's been one more challenged. Um, and in fact, one of my healthcare colleagues at the firm uh, was only partially pulling my leg, but I, I think we can stop uh, having these panels be about the Affordable Care Act. Well, that was like five years ago, and we're still having panels on the Affordable Care Act and its future. Um, it's just the way that it's been. So in 2017, December 2017, uh, Congress and President Trump uh, pushed through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and that eliminated the payment aspect of the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate. Now, as uh, most of you probably know, the prior challenge before the Supreme Court uh, resulted in Chief Justice John Roberts saving the Affordable Care Act based on the individual mandate and upholding Congress having the power to tax. Well, the argument goes in the challenge before the Supreme Court now, and I won't recount the whole procedural posture, um, the challenge now before the Supreme Court essentially says, well, if it was upheld based on the congressional power to tax and the tax is gone, we think that not only should the individual mandate go away, but the entire law should go away. And uh, initially, the Department of Justice didn't side uh, with that challenge, but under uh, the Trump administration, they ultimately chose to uh, side with that challenge. And so the administration is before the Supreme Court challenging the ACA. Now, what might happen here? Um, in this entire ambitious hour plus, we are, we are tackling so many topics that we could have had a full day symposium on and uh, fed you all a, a delicious lunch along the way. Uh, but alas, here we are in COVID times tackling 
you know, tough topics in a short amount of time. Uh, fundamentally, the speculation is that uh, the Affordable Care Act may well survive, that uh, even appointees that have been uh, put on by Republican presidents uh, might save the law. And, and one way they might do that is through what's called severability. So Justice Kavanaugh, for one, um, has a track record of uh, severing out a piece of a law that is unconstitutional or uh, not enforceable and saving the balance of the law. And so theoretically, if the individual mandate were eliminated and the balance of the law survived, um, all these other elements that are very popular now, pre-existing conditions and the like, uh, protection for them would remain. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, who knows how the votes are going to come down. And obviously, uh, Amy Coney Barrett's been nominated and may well be a part in this discussion. So um, with, with that backdrop on the future of the ACA, uh, we've obviously got a tremendous election looming. Uh, I believe last time I went to Brian first, and Nadeem, I'm coming to you. And uh, if it is a President Biden and a, a Democratic sweep, and we're going to flip this question for Brian as well, so I'm not indicating any bias here. Um, what might that group do with a tabula rasa that could result from the ACA being thrown out? And then what might they do if it's upheld uh, that would probably be more incremental in nature? Nadine. No, sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you again. Um, I, my fear is if, um, if the uh, Affordable Care Act is actually uh, uh, ruled unconstitutional and thrown out the full law, of course, you will have chaos, um, uh, I think, in healthcare across the country. But then, too, I think the, uh, the, the voices, the progressive voices uh, around uh, a President Biden and in Congress, uh, around a leader Schumer and a Speaker Pelosi, if, again, in a Democratic sweep, would push for a Medicare for all type uh, rewrite. Um, and they would also push for elimination of the filibuster to get it done. Uh, and I think it would be very difficult in a moment um, like that to, to hold back the gates. I think they'll be able to at the end of the day, but I think it would uh, demonstrate the fissures within the Democratic Party and, and where, uh, for example, the, the Senator Sanders and, and the Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, where they come from in their views of a Medicare for all. Uh, so I think that that fight would loom large and it would loom, um, I think it would take over uh, the remainder of, of, the, of the congressional cycle whenever the, uh, whenever the Supreme Court rules. But I think at the end of the day, though, if uh, there is um, a, a full override and the, um, the forces who help pass the Affordable Care Act originally uh, succeed, which I feel that they will ultimately will to push back uh, against the, uh, some type of uh, Medicare for all, I think they would uh, vote to reinstitute the law. They would uh, fix whatever the concern was uh, within the, uh, the, the Supreme Court. Perhaps they would have an individual mandate with a nominal um, uh, penalty at the end of the day, and maybe they will call it a tax as they should have in the first time. Uh, in the first place, uh, when, I, when I was there in 20, uh, when we passed it, I think there was a discussion, a big discussion, should we call it a tax or not? And I think uh, uh, Chief Justice Robert uh, answered that question for us. Uh, but, uh, but, but I feel that uh, it would be extremely uh, 
uh, hard and difficult fight. At the end of the end of the day, though, uh, the Affordable Care Act would be uh, reinstituted, but it would be reinstituted with some some uh, pressures to make it even more progressive, in the sense that a public option would be added uh, to that as well, and uh, that is a primary. A policy initiative that uh, uh, Vice President uh, and Senator Biden and, and Senator Harris um, have put forward uh, to the Affordable Care Act that uh, that expanding accessibility uh, and lowering the cost would be through providing a nationwide public option uh, in addition to the uh, to the private plans uh, option as well. So, look, it's it's um, um, I think the hope. For Democrats is that uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts um, and um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh would rule for uh, 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 separability, and uh, and then we would just move ahead now, and, and the Affordable Care Act would uh, finally rest and become the, the law of the land with uh, a lot less uh, court um, decisions in hand. So just to put you on the spot, it sounds like the the bid ask spread on the left side of the aisle. It would be somewhere in between uh, mend it, don't end it, to quote a prior Democratic president. Uh, so, so make some tweaks, uh, have a more robust public option. Uh, but if it's thrown out entirely, there might be immense uh, member pressure to move toward Medicare for all. Yeah, I think so. I think that's, I think that's a fair assessment. But, but I think at the end of the day, though, the fight will be ugly and it would be long. But I think at the end of the day, uh, the more... Uh, pragmatist side would win and I would say we do have a, a law that has been in place for more than 10 years and, and we should continue it and but expand on it. But it will be ugly. Brian, uh, coming your way. So President Trump uh, wins re-election. Uh, the Republicans uh, sweep back into power. Uh, what could we expect in either scenario uh, ACA thrown out, ACA survives under severability. Well, um, as you suggested, Mike, there is a high degree of confidence among Republicans that the ACA will be preserved by this court, even with an Amy Coney Barrett um, among the nine justices ruling on it. I don't know a single Republican who thinks that this uh, challenge will succeed. So. Um, we can play out the hypothetical, but just want to upfront put that out there that it seems like um, the ACA it will be safe um, after this court case is decided. Um, Republicans, I, I would just say also, you know, Trump has been pretty comfortable in the healthcare space. Uh, Republicans, I, I can't say, are are always to a person comfortable talking about healthcare. I think there is a certain recognition grudgingly that um, you know, they, they tend to lose on this issue when they go toe to toe in terms of the way that it's messaged. Um, I think they struggle with how to talk about the issue, though I think they're confident in their proposals. There, there is a, a challenge there um, in terms of messaging. And, and, and so um, that said, the, the president has been very aggressive about um, you know, trying to reduce pharmaceutical costs. He effectively reformed the VA. He is pushing uh, legislation on surprise medical billing. Um, he's made it the policy of the administration to cover pre-existing conditions with a recent executive order. That's something that has the support of every single Republican and every single Democrat. So I think 
the, the, the sort of popular talking point related to the theoretical repeal of Obamacare is that um, people with pre-existing conditions would be left, um, you know, uncovered, but I, I, I can't think of a single person in Congress, Republican or Democrat, who wouldn't support or doesn't support um, covering people with pre-existing conditions. Now, Republicans would do it in a different way. I think one thing that you would see in a Republican Congress and from a Republican administration is redirecting Obamacare subsidies that are currently used to support um, the federal program uh, being directed to the states to support the poor uh, residents in those states, as well as the um, folks with pre-existing conditions. That's a popular component of all the Republican proposals I've seen. Um, you'd see a lot of other mechanisms for restoring um, choice and options at the state level and trying to kind of redirect them from the federal um, government to the states. I think Republicans would argue strenuously that a lot of the promises of Obamacare have been unfulfilled. And in fact, a lot of the um, aspirations in terms of cost choice um, and choice have not come to pass. Premiums have, have dramatically increased among um, those who use Obamacare plans. So I think Republicans are getting a little more comfortable talking about healthcare. Wouldn't, wouldn't say that they're there yet. Um, they do have a number of proposals they consistently push. I think you have a number of Republicans in the House and Senate, formerly doctors, uh, who are very comfortable and think that the party should be more assertive and aggressive and um, on the offense and feel very strongly about their proposals, would, would have a larger voice going forward. I actually think the party is a little bit more united and a little more conservative than it was in 2017 in terms of its composition in Congress and um, a repeal effort might be more successful now um, with, if, if they were to expand their numbers and hold on to their majority, having had a few years to think through some of these ideas with a party, a president of their own party. So I think I wouldn't say Republicans are um, positioned to win a healthcare debate, but I definitely think they're, they're prepared, ready to engage in a more um, aggressive way, and I think that they recognize that they need to, um, whether Obamacare is preserved or not. So uh, our former Secretary of State, Colin Powell, once uh, invoked the, the pottery barn rule, you know, you break it, you bought it, on a whole different policy objective. I won't bring that up here and, and get us off track, but um, to the extent that uh, President Obama tackled healthcare reform, uh, in, in sort of a big and bold way, and it's been challenged ever since. Um, is it fair to say that there's appetite within the caucuses for um, big reform? Uh, do, they, do they want that opportunity? Or are they sort of hoping this law is going to be saved and we'll play around the margins? Nadine, back to you. Um. Well, no, I think, I think Democrats would like to, to expand on the Affordable Care Act, like I talked about uh, with the public option. Look, and, and in terms of, of what the Affordable Care Act had guaranteed, it guaranteed that no lifetime limits, it guaranteed a set of uh, protections for, for, for folks, it guaranteed that uh, women are not charged more for simply being a woman. They guaranteed that uh, 26 and under are covered. And, and the idea was the more people go into the program, and that was the initial thought behind the mandate, 
the 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 lower the cost it will be for everyone. Of course, we you know from from day one it has had challenges, uh, in especially in red states uh, throughout. But but that said, um, what what Democrats would like to see within the Affordable Care Act is really more choice and more affordable choice, and that's that's why we keep hearing about the public option. And look, I mean, I think. I think insurers are going to be concerned about that, uh, uh, certainly, and what does that mean? And, and at the time when we were trying to, to pass the Affordable Care Act, I believe Senator Lieberman is the one uh, and, and, uh, uh, to, to vote against the public option at the time, uh, but I think they have to do a better job of explaining what it is. Um, and, and I hope that um, one way or the other, at the end of the day, uh, if the Supreme Court uh, rules and the ACA is saved, um, that uh, Republicans and Democrats, depending on who is in charge, depending on who is in the White House or, or, or who's you know, uh, in the Senate, take a look at the healthcare system overall and say, look, now we have the Affordable Care Act in place. You know, forget the repeal aspect because you keep going back to the repeal. You add more uncertainty into the system um, and then you're going to destroy a, a, something that Americans have been dependent on it for years. But take a look at the Affordable Care Act and say, how can we improve it? Um, you know, and I think that that in every major law where you've had a major fight throughout, at the end of the day, when it becomes a law of the land, then that's what happens. Look, you know, look at uh, Part D, for example. Democrats uh, fought President Bush tooth and nail on Part D. Uh, however, after it became the law of the land, we went ahead and, you know, had, um, you know, ensured that seniors throughout, you know, Democratic districts knew what Part D was. And, and we helped, uh, we continue to help improve the law today. So I think we move, hopefully after the Supreme Court decision, we move past all this and talk about how we can improve the Affordable Care Act. Ryan, over to you. I think Republicans' view is that a, a law that is not working properly should not be, um, we've had 10 years to see whether it could work and the results are not promising. So why don't we try some other things um, that we think would be more likely to result in lower costs like competition or um, greater choice. So I, I don't think the fact that the law is has been the law for a long time means that um, Republicans have to therefore accept it. Um, I don't think that they will. I think the, the challenge is coming up with a, a proposal that they can all agree to, which has been a big challenge for Republicans who, you know, just sort of, I think, temperamentally are not as comfortable with big uh, DC-based solutions. They prefer to see these things fixed at the state level, and they're, they're solutions tend to focus on that um, devolution of, of power on the, of, over healthcare decisions to the states. So a huge part of the calculus is how many votes do you need in the United States Senate to get something accomplished? And assuming the parties aren't prepared to reach across the aisle and do a grand bargain approach, I think the conventional wisdom has been 60 votes given the filibuster, which I believe uh, Nadim you referenced earlier, is the magic number, is this the time where the filibuster breaks and the magic number goes from 60 to 50 
that being incredibly important because we've got a lot of tight races out there. Uh, the Tom Tillis race in North Carolina continues to get more and more dramatic. Uh, Lindsey Graham suddenly is in a dead heat. Uh, so folks who are counting uh, senators in the U.S. Senate, um, are, are they really counting toward uh, 50 or is 60 the requirement? Nadine. Look, I, I worked in the, in the Senate for a total of about uh, 10 years uh, out of my 25 years on Capitol Hill. So I, I do have a, um, a, a soft spot for, for the filibuster, understanding why it's important and why it is used um, in, in, in the Senate. However, I, I have seen it abused by both parties uh, in, the past, in the past years. There's no question about that. Uh, but perhaps there is a middle ground of uh, maintaining the filibuster, but also allowing for uh, legislation to move forward and get voted on. I mean, I think there's some Democrats are taking a look at that and trying to, to see if there's a way to do it, perhaps bill by bill or, uh, you know, instead of just completely getting rid of the filibuster. So I, I wouldn't say it's going to uh, completely be, be gone, but look, this has to be, it has to come a reckoning soon um, in, the, in the United States Senate to, to ensure that the, the use of the filibuster is, is used as it was originally intended. And that is for the party and the minority to be able to slow down a piece of legislation so they could weigh in and help change um, uh, the course and help change the bill and get some wins within that piece of legislation instead of just being used to kill legislation. And understandably, I mean, again, Democrats have used it and Republicans have used it. But I think that's why there is a, there is a concern across the country that not a lot of things are getting done. Brian? It's frustrating to be in the minority. Um, you can't do what you want to do in the Senate. Uh, any one member can require 60 votes just to get onto a piece of legislation. Um, which is effectively how the, legisl the, the legislative filibuster is used these days um, in most cases. And, you know, I think the filibuster is a very useful tool in ensuring that the outcomes um, are, are broadly accepted by the general public. The, the reason Obamacare is not broadly accepted is because not a single Republican voted for it in contrast to the Social Security Act, the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security reform of the 1984, all these big, these big social programs that the Congress passed in the modern era were done with broad bipartisan majorities, well over 60 votes, both parties, and for that reason, they were widely accepted and integrated uh, without any real political turbulence. Um, that that has been the political, I think, um, problem with Obamacare is, is that it did not have bipartisan buy-in. And I think that the Democrats who are talking about getting rid of the filibuster, uh, if they take control of the Senate and the White House in January, are really setting themselves up for maybe a short-term uh, sugar high on some legislation passing, but long-term exacerbating some of the um, the partisan tensions in the country right now and also ensuring that whatever it is that they pass does not have the bipartisan buy-in that all these other big programs have enjoyed over the last hundred plus years. And Mike, Mike, real quickly though, I think Brian hit a point 
that is absolutely right on. I think dem from Democratic B, you look at the tax bill that passed as well. Uh, it was passed through reconciliation that and it did include the getting rid of the, the, the man, you know, the penalty for the mandate. So look, I, I think the recon reconciliation rules as well, as well have been abused by both parties. So I, I, I firmly believe that we need to take a step back and see and say what is working and what is not working. Uh, because if you break the rules of what the Senate is, uh, at the end of the day, I think you're right. Brian is right. We are going to pay a price as a country. But at the same time, you've got to, you've got to, you know, the, the, those who who are in the majority um, should have an opportunity to govern and not be stopped. Um, and that's, I'll leave it at that. So, uh, Elizabeth, I'll, I'll come to you next with uh, what comes next. What does this mean? So if um, we have... Uh, partisan gridlock and we can't get anything done without 60 votes and, and we're not prepared to cross party lines, but our healthcare system uh, just dramatically needs to be improved uh, with us spending 18% of our GDP and achieving results that are substandard compared to our peer nations. Um, what does this mean, you know, down in the trenches for providers? You know, it's, it's really interesting, and I think I'll start with the silver lining here, because there is a silver lining, and that is a crisis such as a global pandemic tremendously accelerates medical, scientific, and technological innovation. I mean, we're, we're in a period right now where we're seeing rapid implementation of ideas and bringing them from bench to bedside. Um, we're seeing new solutions and technology coming out, such as telehealth. We're seeing interesting solutions and wearables and artificial intelligence and, and everything across the board. Um, and not only are we seeing that, but we're seeing all this pressure from people that were normally very resistant to change and adaptation of new technologies um, to shift. And now there's a willingness to try these new ideas and solutions um, because they, they have to, because we have to change. Um, it's not so much a return to normal, it's, it's a return to a, a new and, and much better normal in a lot of circumstances. The problem is, is that this acceleration and this rapid change across medicine and science and technology stirs quite a bit up, uh, not only in the medical world, but also in the political world. Um, and things that are traditionally not political have become highly politicized, particularly surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it's hard to predict exactly what the future will look like. Um, I think there will be a lot of things that are better, as I said, but there will be a lot of things that are different. Um, and we have to remember that at its heart, this really isn't a political issue. This is a medical problem. This is a pandemic. Um, and our solutions and our treatments and our preventative measures really need to stay very, very rooted in the facts and the science. So there's a lot of fancy technology coming out, but very simple things like hand washing, social distancing, wearing masks, being responsible with your own person um, are critical to us uh, returning to our new and better normal. Um, so in the, in the trenches, you know, trying to remember that it's people's health and people's lives that we're dealing with, um, and, and trying to remember that the solutions are, should be really rooted in our medicine and our science and our facts, um, I think will really get us to that better normal much quicker um, if we try and remember that this really at its heart is not a political issue, it's, it's a medical issue. And no matter how we get there, um, what path we're gonna take in this 
um, post-election era, um, remembering that we have a strained healthcare system with people with pre-existing conditions that are not going away um, and care that has been delayed and screening exams that have been delayed. And, and not only are we sort of not at status quo, we're behind going into this post-election uh, era. Um, we need to really get back to our medicine and science and, and try and figure out the best way possible to deliver that care um, within our strained system and our, and our strained providers. I appreciate your idealism, I do. And I think sometimes, you know, as we're engaged in uh, some political wrestling and job owning and what can get through Congress, um, it, it's possible for folks to lose sight of ordinary patients, you know, who just need care and just want to be healed. And uh, I think that, Alex, that goes to um, how healthcare businesses and, you know, even a, a hospital is, of course, a business. Um, so that, that term is, you know, not just private equity-backed uh, healthcare companies, but um, hospitals and everyone involved in the system, uh, how they maneuver around the level of complexity and, uh, frankly, uh, indecision or, or maybe a, a better uh, better word uh, would be the un unreliable nature of the ACA given all the challenges over the years, um, what environment are we going to be operating in? So what businesses do you see surviving and thriving in this environment given the ambiguities? Yeah, let me, uh, thanks Mike. Let me um, take a crack at that. A couple of sort of introductory comments on the business environment. First, you know, I think the business community and healthcare generally very much subscribes to the view that the risk of the ACA being deemed unconstitutional, um, you know, even even with a with a um, you know a Barrett addition to the court, is very low. And so, you know, my comments are going to be prefaced with that. Um, secondly, the, all the subsectors that I noted previously, telehealth, surgery centers, home health and hospice, behavioral care. I think they're all likely to stay in vogue regardless of the election outcome and kind of, you know, their, their fundamental drivers aren't going to be going to, going to, you know, be substantially altered by, you know, the, the results of this election at either the presidential or congressional level. Um, you know, I think as, as Nadeem and, and, and Brian noted earlier, there's, there's definitely a fair bit of bipartisan agreement on a lot of specific policy issues like surprise billing, drug pricing reform and, you know, kind of likely direction on market basket updates and Medicare spending growth over time. So the differences are really more in terms of big picture priorities and how those play out. And for the Democrats, expanding coverage and improving access and affordability and with a generally larger role for the public sector. Um, for Republicans, it's lowering costs, increasing flexibility for states and, and incentivizing in innovation and competition. Um, you know, sort of a, you know, and within that context, um, you know, how I see things, you know, sort of from a winners and losers uh, standpoint, I, you know, I'll, I'll throw out the following, kind of in a, in a Biden victory scenario, and, and particularly with a Democratic sweep as a backdrop, um, you know, we first mentioned hospitals as a probable net winner uh, under that scenario. I think the acute care sector has been under something of a long-term secular decline with particular pressure on rural critical access and safety net hospitals. I think given the disproportionate impact of COVID on minority, elderly, and low-income populations, I would expect the Biden administration to prioritize 
shoring up these vulnerabilities on our public health infrastructure. And also to be less gung-ho around things like price transparency and other kind of regulatory initiatives. Staying with that social determinants of health theme, um, we've seen physician groups and networks that cater to these vulnerable populations, especially dual eligibles, gain a lot of attention recently um, and would expect this to be even more of a growth area under Biden. And the last net winner I would mention um, in this scenario would be you know, the payer services businesses that cater to the Medicare and Medicaid populations, um, you know, given likely increases in both enrollment and long-term funding uh, for those. Um, for in terms of losers, I think the, the biggest net losers I would throw out in a, in a Biden slash Democrat, Democratic sweep scenario would probably be branded pharma and the ecosystem that surrounds them. I think the Democrats will push a lot harder for direct prescription price negotiations uh, by Medicare. Um, that's going to negatively impact the innovators as well as contract research and manufacturing, marketing services, and the forward supply chain, especially if the pricing impact ripples through to commercial payers. Um, and then there's also scrutiny um, and debate around the role of private equity. And uh, I think that would undoubtedly be a focus area um, uh, and an outcome of any blue wave in this election cycle. It's hard to predict exactly how that might play out, but at a minimum, I would expect a higher burden of proof around PE-backed companies lowering overall costs and expanding access which could impact the playbooks for investing in physician practice management and, uh, and similar spaces. Um, in the event of a Trump win and a Republican hold on the Senate, I think it can kind of flip things around. Branded Pharma would not be out of the woods uh, by any means, but would likely face less draconian pricing reform solutions and impacts to the ecosystem as a result. Private insurers and payer services focused on commercial population, uh, populations would be in a relatively better growth position, I think. Private equity activity would certainly be less scrutinized and, and freer to continue investing in entrepreneurial physicians and groups and other attractive growth areas. I would also kind of throw in device companies as likely winners under a second Trump administration and would expect them to see continued gains in, from CMS in terms of both coverage and reimbursement. Um, hospitals would probably be kind of a, a major net loser, and even that's relative in a Trump, you know, in, in Republican Senate scenario. The Trump team does remain very focused on, on price transparency and overall cost reduction initiatives like site neutrality and constraining growth in 340B spending. They're also less likely to prioritize health infrastructure and safety net uh, improvements. Um, and then, you know, kind of the last thing I would throw out, and this is more of a general consideration, but, you know, hand in hand with the sort of the additional flexibility for states in the way of either block grants um, you know or other you know, kind of uh, flexibility initiatives you know any 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 the provider communities that you know have a focus on, on Medicaid or a high proportion of, of Medicaid in their payer mix likely see some incremental pressure in a in a sort of a Trump Republican Senate um, kind of environment going forward Alex, thank you for that tour. I'll just uh, tack on gratuitously. Uh, telemedicine has been an area that I spent a lot of time studying pre-COVID, uh, published a, a journal article on it, and a lot of the obstacles to its adoption just melted away immediately in a pandemic, uh, which was amazing. And I, I think a lot of folks are 
uh, seeing the potential opportunity there for it to be a game changer. Uh, but it does have its detractors out there who say, hey, wait a minute, you know, now we have some data. Let's study the data. Let's see how this experiment went. And in fact, we've got insurers, uh, major insurers, Anthem and United Healthcare, who are, are now charging co-pays for telemedicine visits. Those were waived uh, throughout the pandemic. So I think the telemed bandwagon um, is, is fueled up, uh, ready to go, but we, we've got to make sure that all the tires are on the wagon. Uh, but that's one that, that's, uh, I think, one to be watched. Um, Alex? No, I just couldn't agree more. There definitely are some, some, some significant hurdles that still need to be cleared. But we think the directional trend is, is, is kind of pointing in one direction. So quick lightning round. Uh, we're coming up on our end of our hour here, and we can slide a little bit beyond that. But I want to be respectful of people's time. Uh, we had mention of pharma. Um, and I think this is a lightning round for our two Capitol Hill uh, folks. Um, what will happen with regard to pharma? You know, if there's some uh, consensus that drug prices are too high, um, uh, under any scenario, is there an opportunity to get together on that? Or is this going to be uh, a challenge post-election? If you mean get together before um, the end of the year, I think there's bipartisan um, support for doing something to lower uh, drug prices, whether something like that can come together in, in this environment before the end of the year is to me seems remote. It's going to take a reset button, so post-election and post-inauguration. Because it, it sounds like both parties are, are pretty uh, excited about this topic. And, and so, you know, I'm sure pharma will be watching carefully. Nadine? Yeah, I fully agree. Nothing before the election, but I think post-election, uh, if there's a Democratic sweep, um, I think you'll see the contours of H.R. 3, which the House passed, um, and it was mentioned earlier by Alex. Um, sorry about that. Um, but also, I think an opportunity for... If President Trump is reelected, I, I could see uh, an opportunity here for work across the aisle with uh, at least Democrats in the House um, to, to try to get something done, because uh, I would assume he'd be thinking about legacy type legislation. Yep. Uh, appreciate your uh, extra policy advisor weighing in there, Nadine. So we have one of those in our house as well. Yeah, <laughs> he always does. So uh, surprise medical billing and private equity, you know, last two rapid fire topics uh, from the Hill. Uh, Nadeem, I'll, I'll, well, actually, I'll give you a minute for, for your analysts there to finish weighing in. Uh, Brian. Senators Cassidy and Alexander have been talking um, very actively about uh, coming together on that issue. They've been um, sort of the lead Republicans and have been far apart for Quite a while. There is some talk of them uh, working with Democrats uh, on the relevant committees in the House to see if they can get something done before the end of the year. Senator Alexander definitely views this as an important legacy item and has tried to be pragmatic in reaching out to Senator Cassidy as well as some Democrats in the House. Whether this actually gets done this year, um, I can't make a prediction, but I, I can assure you that people who are engaged in this um, are, are working hard at it. Nadine? Absolutely. That is an area of true bipartisanship. And uh, I think the person who is standing in the way happens to be 
a Democratic chairman in the House. So, <laughs> um, and then when you have um, when you have a de- two Democratic chairmen in the House, uh, two Republican chairmen in the Senate supportive, um, I-, I think they will find a way. Uh, maybe at the end of this year, if not next year. But in terms of private equity, um, if we even looked at the last Heroes Bill that was introduced by Democrats, there were no uh, uh, language in there prohibiting um, healthcare-owned private equity companies from receiving uh, federal assistance. I mean, there was a push for that. However, I think private equity and healthcare are going to continue to be under greater scrutiny and oversight under a Democratic House and potentially Democratic Senate as well. And it's not only going to be in healthcare, it's going to be in other um, industry sectors as well. Brian, private equity? Yeah, um, I think if Democrats were to to win the Senate, um, Nadim is right. They seem to be very focused on this. Uh, They think it's a winner for them. And... um, you know, I think anybody in that in that uh, sector should prepare themselves for very rigorous oversight if Democrats are to take over. Well, folks, uh, that concludes our hour, and uh, I'd love to um, ask for you know a couple of quick parting comments from uh, Elizabeth and Alex. Since uh, as debate moderator, I think you guys got a little bit less time. Um, and I do appreciate uh, Nadim and Brian uh, being you know, so in- incredibly uh, respectful and ending on a bipartisan note with the surprise medical billing uh, bipartisanship. Um, so Elizabeth, any closing thoughts? Sure, thank you so much. Um, I would just encourage everyone uh, as these issues continue to swell and, and heat up to stay very rooted in bipartisan science um, and medicine to personally do their part to stay safe, stay well, um, try and remove their own personal care from the politics that surround it, um, and do the best they can for the community and and the patients that we serve. Alex? Would share kind of similar comments, just hope everybody stays safe and well, and, and, you know, sort of however you plan to vote, make sure you do vote um, in the coming election. Well, I want to thank everybody for participating. And I know we've got a lot of different uh, groups represented in the audience. I'd uh, love to have more time for Q&A, but I uh, do want to be respectful of uh, the time that we've got here. And so I want to thank Nadim, Brian, Elizabeth, Alex, uh, for your contributions. And then coming attractions, we are certainly going to reconvene uh, and probably not post-election because things will be swirling around then, uh, but certainly post-inauguration. What can we expect out of this next administration, uh, whichever one it is, a Biden administration or Trump administration? Uh, And I I really appreciate the high level dialogue in this group. Uh, I do think that we we were far more substantive than uh, some of what we've seen on TV in these debates. uh, And kudos to all of you. So uh, everyone, thank you for joining. And uh, please do feel free to reach out to me with any questions. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farbershreck podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.